There are two summary statements in the Book of Discipline of our core theological convictions as United Methodists. The Articles of Religion of the Methodist Church and the Confession of Faith of the Evangelical United Brethren Church. And both statements have a comment on communion, on the Eucharist, on the Lord's Supper. The Articles of Religion remind us with these words, the Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have among themselves one to another, but rather is a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death. And the Confession of Faith of the Evangelical United Brethren Church observes it in this way. We believe the Lord's Supper is a representation of our redemption, a memorial of the sufferings and death of Christ, and a token of love and union which Christians have with Christ and with one another. Similar, both recognizing the same thing, a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death and a representation of our redemption, a memorial of the sufferings and death of Christ. So the question I want to ask, and it's a brief one this morning, is this. How does communion represent? How does it memorialize? How does it remember the sufferings and the death of Christ for our redemption? We recall that Jesus told his disciples, This is my body, broken for you. And this is my blood of the new covenant, of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But what did Jesus mean by this? This is my body. This is my blood. Was Jesus referring to any bread and any wine that anyone ever afterwards might drink? Was he referring to sanctified bread and sanctified wine or blessed bread and blessed wine? What is the this? In fact, in the context of the gospel, the bread was Passover bread. And the wine was Passover wine. By the time we reach chapter 26 in Matthew's gospel presentation, we're nearing the very end of Jesus' ministry on earth. He had arrived in Jerusalem this final time on a Sunday. And in chapter 26, we find ourselves on Thursday of that same week. In fact, the very night that Jesus ate this meal with his disciples, that night he would be arrested, and the next day he would be tried and convicted and executed. So what we find in Matthew 26, 17 to 30 really is a final supper with Jesus' disciples. It's not the last time he would eat with them, but it was the last time before he was resurrected from the dead. But it's important to remember that the meal is not only significant because it was Jesus' last meal. And it's not only significant because later Christians would memorialize this meal and eat it ever afterwards. Those aren't the things that gave it all of its significance. They were filled full by those realities. But this meal was special even before Jesus ate it. It was a Passover. It was a meal that occurred every year. And in the Judaism of Jesus' day, it was one of the most important annual celebrations on their calendar. Perhaps you notice some of the Passover details as our liturgist was reading this morning. Maybe you notice that Jesus was reclining and not sitting at the table. Maybe you notice that they ate a certain kind of bread and that they drank wine at a set time during the meal. Maybe you notice they sang a hymn, 
Each of those elements that Matthew has highlighted had particular meanings within the Passover celebration of ancient Israel. And if we're to understand what Matthew was trying to show us, and through that, what Jesus was trying to reveal to his disciples, we have to be careful to understand what these elements meant in their context. And since it's this scene in the gospel that's the foundation of our monthly commemoration of communion, maybe by understanding what Jesus meant to say, we'll understand what he means to say to us today. Now, Passover began as a festival that grew out of a real-life experience. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And it was through the events of the Exodus, which is recorded in the book of Exodus, in the First Testament, in the Old Testament, it was through those events that they were set free from slavery, that God delivered them from slavery to the Egyptians. And if you recall the history, in the course of revealing himself, God revealing himself, both to Israel and to Egypt through those plagues. It was in the 10th plague that God summarized everything that he meant to say to the Israelites on the cost of their salvation and to the Egyptians on the cost of the sins that they had committed throughout their history. God decided to kill the firstborn son of every house in Egypt. The inheritor is what that means in the culture, the one who would inherit in every house. Maybe something we don't think about very often when we read that story is that that plague, which was against Egypt, was not only for the Egyptians. The Israelites, too, would have lost the inheritor, the firstborn son of every one of their houses, if they did not sacrifice a lamb, smear the blood of that lamb on their door frames, and remain in their houses until morning. And that night, for those who did that and trusted what God said through Moses, God passed over the houses of those Israelites, sparing their firstborn sons. And out of that event came the festival of Passover. And the Israelites were commanded by God to observe that festival every year. And in the early days, before the Israelites had been given a homeland of their own by God, it was a meal that was associated with haste, with rush, with readiness to pick up and leave at a moment's notice. However, by Jesus' day, Passover had come to symbolize a leisurely meal of celebration, and through it they commemorated God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and they celebrated God's gift of the promised land of Canaan. This sense of shalom, of peace at the meal, was represented in Jesus' day by the practice of eating in a reclining fashion. That's why they were reclining at the table. They didn't recline at the table at every meal, but they did at Passover because it was to be received as a blessing. So that wonderful Da Vinci painting of the Last Supper is wrong, right? It's wrong because they're all sitting and they're all on the same side of the table as though they were being observed, but that's not the way it would have worked. But Jesus at this last Passover, he had celebrated this with his disciples on at least three other occasions and possibly more. He had added to this last one a sense of foreboding. He had told his disciples several times before this night that he was going to die, that he was going to be executed and he never told them when, but it was looming over his last meal. And on this very night, he revealed that one of his own would betray him. And if you can catch the symbolism of Passover, you recognize that that also was part of the original Passover celebration. The father of the house had to sacrifice that lamb. On the night of this Passover, the first and only born son of God would not be passed over. He would be the lamb whose blood would protect the rest of us from the God's avenging angel. 
And like the lamb of Passover, he wouldn't be sacrificed by a stranger. One of his own, one of his 12 disciples, would betray him. And those 12 disciples represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It'd be interesting if that's what Jesus talked about, the lamb and all that significance I just shared with you. But isn't it interesting that Jesus does not associate himself with the lamb at this final Passover? He doesn't even mention it. Instead, Jesus chose to associate his sacrifice with two other traditional elements of the Passover feast. Unleavened bread and wine. And today, it's a little different on the platform here. And when uh, Pastor Bill comes to lead us in the words of institution and to help us to commemorate Passover together, you'll notice that there's uh, unleavened bread on the table. It's actually a Jewish recipe that we often share at Passover. Jen made those yesterday. But it's very important that the bread is unleavened. In fact, they were prohibited of using leaven when they cooked bread for Passover. Now, to leaven bread today, we usually use yeast, right? There are other ways to leaven things, but usually yeast. In Jesus' day, they would ferment a little bit of dough, and then they would add that to the loaf to ferment it, to help it to to rise. And if you've ever cooked with yeast, you know it takes some time for it to work. And on the original Passover, the Israelites didn't have time to wait for their bread to rise because God could have delivered them at any time that night. They had to be ready to go. They had their cloak on. They had their belt wrapped around, their loins girded, their staff in there. They were ready to go. So they didn't have time. So originally, it was unleavened bread because it was the bread of haste. It was the bread of readiness. Some of you may remember Jesus says to us, right, that the Son of Man could come at at the day or the hour nobody knows. He'll come like a thief in the night, you remember. And that is a Passover way of talking, right? You have to be ready at any time to go. So that's the, what it, you, it meant at the beginning. But by Jesus' day, that unleavened bread had taken on an additional significance. In the thought world of Judaism in Jesus' day, leaven had also come to represent sin. It was a good analogy, I think. Because it takes just such a tiny amount of yeast, just such a tiny amount of leaven to permeate a large amount of bread. And there was a practice commanded by God that at the observation of Passover, they had to remove all leaven from the house. They still do it today in Jewish households. It's a fun thing for the kids. They hide leaven and the kids have to go around and search it out. And when they find it, they all take it outside and burn it. It's just part of the celebration. But the reason God commanded that and the way that the Jewish people of Jesus, they had understood the removal of leaven from their houses is that it was symbolic of the removal of sin from the people of Israel. So the unleavened bread in Jesus' day carried this additional symbolism. It wasn't only the bread of haste, but it was also bread that had not been polluted by sin. It was innocent bread, holy bread, sinless bread. And it was of that bread that Jesus said, take any, this is my body. When we eat the bread today with Pastor Bill, we'll recognize together that the lamb that was sacrificed for us that the precious Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that the Son of God who protects us from God's avenging angel was an innocent sacrifice. That's why the bread must be unleavened. He was without sin. His conviction was not justice. He was innocent and he was convicted anyway. He had not committed any offense against God or humans and yet they convicted him in a court of law anyway. The bread is unleavened and broken anyway. Jesus' sacrifice was not justice. It was mercy. And it was not fair. But it was grace to us. 
And Matthew told us that before eating that bread, Jesus gave thanks. In Jewish tradition, you don't bless food. Food has already been blessed by God. In the beginning, when he created the heavens and the earth and he laid out everything, he looked on it and he said it was very good, right? He blessed it at the beginning. There's no need to bless it again. It's not dirty or sick or anything like that. But he gave thanks. And we actually know the prayer because the Jewish communities have held the prayer. It sounds like this in Hebrew, the prayer Jesus would have prayed on this night. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz. And it translates, blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. We'll eat this unleavened bread, the sinless body of Christ broken for us. A little later. Matthew tells us that after they had eaten the bread, therefore after the meal, Jesus took a cup. During Passover, this cup would have been filled with wine, and it would have been one of four symbolic glasses. How many? Four taken at set times during the liturgy. This was the third of four cups, and I'll tell you how I know. All four cups commemorated four verbs, which can be found in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. This is what the passage says. This is God sending Moses to speak to the Israelites on the occasion of the Exodus. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the labors of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the labors of the Egyptians. Did you notice the verbs? In those verses, I will bring you out became the cup of deliverance. I will rescue you became the cup of salvation. I will redeem you became the cup of redemption. And I will take you as my people and I will be your God became the cup of consummation. The first two cups, the cups of deliverance and of salvation are taken before the meal. The Gospel of Luke actually mentions one of those two cups in the way he tells the story, but we read Matthew's Gospel. The cup taken immediately after the meal, immediately after the bread, is the cup of redemption. And that's the cup Jesus associated with his blood. When God promised to redeem the Israelites from slavery, he was recognizing that a price needed to be paid for their release. And to redeem something, maybe we don't use that word very much anymore, but it means to buy something back. So if you took something to a pawn shop and got cash for it, in order to get it back, you have to, you have to redeem it. You have to give cash to them so they'll give you back your item, right? We still do that sometimes. The third cup of Passover represents the price that God had paid to see his people delivered, saved, and brought home from their slavery in Egypt. And Jesus indicated, even though he lived a good 1,500 years or so after those events, he indicated that that price that God paid was in fact his blood. The lamb was just a shadow pointing forward. It was the death of God's son that delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, and it was the death of his son that delivers us from our slavery to sin and death. Now, before I continue with the meal, for comprehensiveness' sake, I just have to do this. They sang a hymn, and we know what the hymn was that they sang. It would have been from a group of psalms called the Hallel, 
which is Psalm 113 to 118. It would have been one of those. Probably Psalm 118. Those psalms are sung every Passover in every Passover liturgy. And if you're familiar with the gospel and you read Psalm 118, you'll notice that Jesus quotes from that psalm a lot, right? The precious cornerstone that the builders rejected, but they got, that's from Psalm 118. Jesus loved Psalm 118. He loved to quote from it. However, in conclusion, I want to consider the other cup of wine that Jesus referenced. Did you notice it in the reading? There's another cup. Did you notice in verse 29 that Jesus went on to say, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new, with you new in my Father's kingdom. Why would he have made that kind of a promise? Seems strange, right? I mean, after all, the Gospels tell us that after Jesus rose from the dead, he ate with his disciples on two other occasions. I think fish on both occasions, but in any case, they were fishermen. It probably is what they had. So he wasn't simply indicating that he wasn't going to eat as they ate anymore. We'll remind ourselves that the resurrected body, when we're resurrected, is not a spirit. It's a body. It's made of spirit, but it's a body. And Jesus, when he was in it, ate. So he's not saying he's not going to eat anymore. I suppose he could have been swearing off all wine or grape juice until the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. Maybe he became a teetotaler. I was raised in the church of Nazarene. We weren't allowed to drink. Maybe we were anticipating Jesus' vow of abstinence from alcohol. But Passover suggests that none of that is in Jesus' line of sight. There was a fourth cup in the Passover commemoration. It was called the cup of consummation. And that cup had come to represent the fulfillment of God's promise to take his people into the land of promise, a land of rest, a land of true peace. It was a celebration of the completion of God's Passover the fulfillment of God's desire to bring his people into a home and into a country where he himself would dwell with them. And Jesus refused to drink it. That's significant. He refused to drink it. He left the fourth cup on the table. And he said he would only lift that fourth cup, the cup of consummation, and drink it when the kingdom came. So Jesus' Passover was undone. It was left incomplete. It wasn't finished. He left it partially finished. It's like Christmas without joy to the world, or Easter without he lives. It was left undone. A verse was left unsung. And he will not finish it until he returns again, bringing with him the new heavens and the new earth, the fully realized kingdom of God. So lifting the glass in our own commemoration of communion has multiple significances. On the one hand, in drinking the cup, we confess together that it was Jesus' blood that was the price paid for our deliverance from our bondage to sin and death. And we, we commemorate that when we drink the cup of redemption. But even more, in raising the cup of redemption each time we do it, and it's important to remember what you're doing, each time we raise that glass, we're asking him to finish what he started, to take up the fourth cup of the Passover Seder, and to bring the kingdom of God to earth as it is in the heavens. Every time we remind him that his Passover is not finished, that the kingdom has not come. And do you, when you look at the world today, is it, do you think the kingdom has come? It's not come in its fullness, that's for sure. Look at the world. 
Look at our lives. Look at our own sufferings, our own difficulties, our own disappointments, our own frailties. When we look at all these things, when we lift that cup, we say, Come, Lord Jesus, fulfill what you promised. We recognize you've saved us. Now rule us. That is the claim of Passover. In taking that cup, we invite Jesus to return, to finish what he began almost 2,000 years ago, to complete his Passover meal. The New Testament has another name for that finished Passover. It's called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. This is most likely why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 has told the church that if we eat or drink this meal in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. It's not because you have to sit there and piously think through, do I have any sins? Am I gonna, is this wine going to poison me if I'm not right with God? It's not about that. It's that you're telling him to come. Are you ready for him to come? It's also why Paul says that we declare his death until he comes, because we declare his redemption until he takes up the cup of consummation and brings the kingdom. So in eating the bread and drinking the cup, we're asking our Lord to return this very day. Theologians say that's eschatological. It's a great word for you. It means last things, eschatological. The meal reminds us of what Jesus has done for us, but it also creates in us a longing for what is yet still to come. Every time we see the suffering of a child, every time we see a nation go at war, every time we see people divided by race or culture, and we see the unforgiveness in the hearts of people, every time we see that evil, carnal spirit that divides people and causes hate and envy and selfish ambition. Every time we see it, we're reminded that Jesus died for us, but the kingdom has not yet come. Communion is an opportunity given to us by God. John Wesley called it a means of grace. And it most certainly is a means of grace to us. But in so many ways... Not only do we remind ourselves of what Jesus did, not only are we nourished spiritually by the story of the gospel that is ensconced in those elements, but we are also screaming against the dark. Make it end. Come, Lord Jesus. Take it out of me. Take it out of the world. Bring your light to this darkness. Don't make us stay like this any longer. It is a cry against the dark. Maybe one of the most important prayers God has given us as we wait for his coming. Shall we ask him again this morning to come?